continues. He states that both the righteous and the wicked will suffer. Job chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. It's interesting to me that when Job delivers this address which continues from chapter 9, remember he finds himself in a garbage heap after suffering the loss of his livelihood, his cattle, his sheep, his goats. And then he lost his children and then he lost his health. And we understand that there may have been at least three people there. His three friends as he gives this speech from a garbage heap. But we also know that there's an invisible multitude. An innumerable host. Because as Job speaks, the pre-incarnate Jesus, the self-existent second person of the Trinity is hanging on every word. And there is a multitude of angels and even demons. As they hang on every word. For Job, this is what the Spanish call la noche oscura del alma. That means the dark night of the soul. It's sometimes used to describe those moments of difficulty, of darkness. It describes a journey away from the body and towards God. And sometimes it's used to describe the spiritual crisis that each and every one of us undoubtedly will experience. Some on a limited basis. Some will experience far more suffering than any of us would want. In the last several chapters, Job's friends have offered what they think are comfort and insight, but really the advice have become like bitter pills. In chapter 8, Bildad accused Job of blowing hot air. In chapter 9, Job has mounted his defense. He concedes that it's impossible to argue with God in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, that God is in charge of both the blameless and the wicked in chapter 9, verses 15 through 31. And so remember Job longed for a mediator, a go-between, some being who could put one hand on the shoulder of God and the other hand on Job. And so now Job's speech turns towards God and he asks a series of heart-wrenching 
questions. Why am I being crushed? Why is God treating me so badly? Did the Lord create me just to destroy me or condemn me? If that's the case, it's probably better if I had never been born. John Stott writes, quote, The Christian's cheap occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. And I would probably add even despair. And so listen to Job's crushing complaint in verse 1. It says, My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Job can't contain his disappointment. He repeats what you already know for those of you who have been following along in the book of Job, his earlier admission. It's his way of saying, I hate my life. I can't stand the suffering. But the truth is now I can't keep quiet about it. He feels compelled to speak honestly and openly about his situation. Job at this point won't keep His burden to himself. He won't hold in the pain. He won't contain the sorrow. He won't hide, disguise, or ignore his feelings. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we find difficulty and doubt and trial and suffering. And some of us are really open about it. And some of us are reluctant to talk about it. Job strikes me as one of those people who isn't a complainer by any stretch of the imagination. Job strikes me as one of those people who, under other circumstances, would be really, really reluctant to share any kind of difficulty, any kind of issue. But there's something happening. He needs relief. His friends have offered little or no comfort or consolation. And so Job will take the pain of his heart and the pain of his circumstances directly to the Lord. He speaks of the bitterness of his soul. And most of you understand what that term means. The term bitter obviously means something that's not sweet. It's not something that's bland to the taste. Something that's bitter is that lingering taste that's left when you've been forced to eat something that you really don't have any choice in the matter. In verse 2, he says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. And so again, his address is now to the Lord. He says, do not condemn me. Remember, he's using the terms of court. And here the word condemn is a judicial term. I've already talked about it in the book of Romans when I say that condemnation in the Bible is the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that have been committed. And so he says, don't condemn, com- condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. And remember what, I've, what we've already learned about the word contend. It's a legal term, which means to bring an accusation. In court, you usually have a defendant and a plaintiff. In his commentary on Job, David L. McKenna suggests that Job is throwing down a kind of a a conversational gauntlet. Job is asking the why question. Job is putting the relationship to the test. Why does God's 
current behavior run contrary to past relationships. McKenna writes, quote, Like a wounded lover, Job wants to know, Who's changed? You or me? In his boldest words to date, Job challenges God to account for the apparent contradictions in his behavior. Show me why you contend with me, unquote. In other words, it's his way of saying, hey, look, everything has been really good up until this point. I've experienced a great marriage and a plentiful children and a great life and and a wonderful business and, and was used mightily. How am I to understand this abrupt change of fortune and difficulty? Job challenges God to account for this apparent contradiction in behavior. Because Job is thinking to himself, I haven't changed. My heart is the same. I still believe in God and I still love God and I still want to honor God. And I need you to understand something, and I need you to remember something. Remember, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Before there was a Genesis, and an Exodus, and a Leviticus, and a Numbers, and a Deuteronomy. Before there was this long history. This is written at a time when we still don't necessarily know the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. This predates all of that. Job doesn't have the benefit of the revelation of scripture. Job doesn't have a list of benefits and purposes and suffering. Job doesn't have a book of Psalms or a book of Bible promises that he can go to. Did Job really believe in the broadest sense that the guilty suffered and the innocent didn't suffer. Remember what I've already suggested to you, that Job's friends believed in a kind of a God who in the most general way possible rewards those people who are good and punishes those people who are evil. And Job is changing. Job is changing part of his belief system. Job's beginning to understand that that maybe all of what people have thought that God unconditionally rewards everyone who is faithful and he unconditionally punishes everyone who isn't may not be true. But Job still wants to know why does he merit this kind of suffering? He still wants to know what exactly are the charges that, that are against me? Job still wants to know, I'm not understanding what's going on in my life. And in verse 3, it says, does it seem good to you that you should oppress? That you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of of the wicked? Job is basically accusing God of oppression and despising his creation and exalting the wicked. And so when he says, and smile on the counsel of the wicked, that means... The the idea is to accept or bless the wicked. Job feels condemned. He feels abandoned. He feels like God doesn't care for him. As a matter of fact, he feels like God cares more for the ungodly than those who are faithful. And sometimes people feel that same way. 
hey, wait a minute, Lord. It, it looks to me like you treat people outside of the church and outside of the family and outside of salvation better than you do the people who are experiencing salvation. And so he basically says, why does it seem good that you should oppress? Do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? Now remember, Job knows perfectly well that God isn't a human being. Job knows perfectly well well, that God doesn't see things unjustly or unfairly or imperfectly. And so when he says, do you have eyes of flesh? The idea being, do you see things the way that people see things? Or do you see from a human perspective? Does God have a limited vision? Does God have imperfect judgment? And and Job knows that that isn't true. In verse 5 he says, Are your days like the days of a mortal man? And remember what the days of a mortal man are. They have a beginning, they have a middle, and they have an end. And of course Job knows that that's not true. Because God doesn't have a beginning, a middle, or an end. God doesn't have to take time out to see if he has enough time to figure things out. In verse 6 it says that you should seek for my iniquity and search out for my sin. Job is in effect asking the question, why does it seem like God is looking for a reason to accuse me, to condemn me, to find fault with me? In verse 7 it says, although you know that I'm not wicked. And there's no one who can deliver from your hand. In other words, Job is once again affirming his innocence. Job is in a dark place. He's in that kind of long and lingering night where you wonder if the night is ever going to end. He knows that he's innocent. Yet the Lord seems to still condemn him. And so here's what he's wondering. If the Lord who sees perfectly and who understands everything from the beginning and the end, if for whatever reason that the Lord doesn't seem to want to save Job, then who will? And so the answer is clear to Job. Once God decides to do something, nothing is going to stop God. So when he says, and there is no one who can deliver from your hand, it's his way of saying, Lord, once you decide to do something, Once you set your mind on something, you're going to do what you want to do. Since no single person, since no group of people has access to everything that God has access to, Job's heart, Job's circumstance, Job's condition, and since God alone has the ability and the authority to help, and he seems to not want to exercise that authority, Or he seems unwilling to exercise that authority. Job has come to that place of emptiness and darkness. And he's wondering again, what in the world is he supposed to do? In his commentary on Job, again, David McKenna points out that Job is asking a series of questions. That in effect, number one, accuse God of acting like a man. Does God enjoy oppressing people? Does God despise his creation? Does God exalt the wicked in verse 3? Does God see through the eyes of the flesh in verse 4? Living out the brevity of life in verse 5. Playing games with temporal power, verse 6. Again, McKenna points out, quote, if Job 
Job's accusations are true, God is nothing more than a man-god who deserves a niche in the pantheon like the Greeks. Although Job knows better, at least he would understand why God tries to ferret out his sin and refuses to deliver him, unquote. But again, remember, 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 the text that you know about has not yet been written. Where the Bible says that God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. God isn't a human being. He doesn't act according to the constraints or restraints or the limitations of a human being. And so Job puts forth some probing questions. Look at verse 8. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity yet you would destroy me. In other words, this is Job's way of saying, you created me. Remember the psalmist says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible's reoccurring statement, the Bible's reoccurring affirmation is that God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. In John 1.1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything that was made, that has ever been made, came into existence because God is the Creator. And Job is wrestling with the question, Lord, I know you've created me. And you've created me in, in in, in in an amazing way. So why in the world would you create me simply to destroy me? There's people who have asked this question all throughout history and through time and space. Is God the creator? Yes. Does he create everyone? The answer is yes. Does he create every single soul? The answer is yes. And so Job is wrestling with the question, well, okay, it doesn't make sense to me. Why would God create people only to allow them to be destroyed. And so Job says in verse 9, Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and you will turn me into dust again. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? Do you understand what's happening? Job is using... A series of poetic illustrations. God, he says, is a potter. And Job is the clay. That sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? Remember, there's another book in the Bible that describes God God as as the potter and us as the clay. He describes God like a dairyman who pours out milk until the milk starts to curdle. And in other words... God pours it out and Job feels like cheese or like a tailor. Remember what a tailor does. The tailor creates clothes, shirts, um, robes, something to clothe you with. And so like the tailor who clothes Job and God the creator clothes human beings with skin and a head and internal organs and external skin. With bones and nerves and muscles. 
And so in verse 12, he says, you've granted me life and favor. Job acknowledges that God is the creator, that he owes his existence and his life to the Lord. And your care has preserved my spirit. In other words, remember, the Bible teaches that human beings are physical, corporeal, but we're also spiritual. There's an outer nature and there's an inward nature. There's a temporal part of us that will have a time frame and that there's something eternal about us and your care has preserved my spirit. Again, McKenna, quote, more than that, Job asks God to remember that he granted him life and showed him favor and preserved his spirit with loving care. In other words, Job has the conversation, wait a minute, you made me, wait a minute. You gave me a spirit, wait a minute. You preserved me, you gave me life, and you gave me favor. And, and, and again, I'm just trying to understand why would you do all of that only to take it away? Harold St. John um, writes, quote, We must not miss this amazing passage in which the clay, he's, that's Job, expostulates with the potter, that's the Lord, and reminds God that in creating him, he's assumed certain responsibilities from which he cannot honorably escape. Chapter 10, verse 8, thy hands made me and fashioned me. Chapter 10, verse 10, the formation of the physical embryo. Verse 11, the growth of skin and flesh and the development of bone and sinew. Verse 12, at the beginning, the gift of the soul and everything that goes along with being a soul. And then the visitation of God. The visitation of God by which man's highest part, the spirit, is confirmed and preserved. In other words, remember what we we learn in the Bible, that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we relate to God. Remember the Bible says that we are made in the image of God. And how do we relate to God? And so in verse 13 he says, And these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. It's Job's way of saying, Everything about me exists because you allow it to exist. And when he says, And these things you have hidden in your heart. In other words, God has a complete understanding not only of Job but of his three friends who are there and every other human being that's on the planet and he's hidden it in his heart and I I found this really interesting it was Job's way of saying he doesn't have to write things down in order to remember it I do probably you don't but every once in a while I have to write things down I have to write my appointments down I have to write what I need at the store I have to write my notes for this message I have to write, write, write so that I can keep in order the things that I need to know but Job's way of saying there is a God in heaven who doesn't have any kind of an accounting system that he has to appeal to in other words the Lord never has to go online and Google a word or look it up He knows everything about everything. And if I sin, he says in verse 14, then you mark me. In other words, if Job is guilty of transgression, you know it. 
and will not acquit me of my iniquity. Job isn't saying, don't hold me accountable for my sin or don't hold me accountable for my my behavior. In verse 15, he says, if I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I'm righteous, I can't lift my head up. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery. Think about what Job is saying. If I do everything right, I suffer. If I do everything wrong, I suffer. It doesn't make sense to me. Job has come to the end of his rope. The pain, the fatigue, the weariness, the misery, the bitterness, the confusion. It's all beginning to take its toll. And Job acknowledges that God knows everything. That God watches everyone's behavior. That God sees sin. He marks it. He punishes it. And remember what's going on inside of his heart. He knows, he knows, he knows he's innocent of deliberate sin as far as he could see. But he's still ashamed. He's still in misery. He's still suffering. He's still feeling disgrace. Why? You know why. He's lost everything. His children are dead. He's in a trash heap. He's, how do you go from a position of such height and favor, and now all of a sudden you are in a garbage heap with three of your closest friends like a homeless person. You have nothing and no one. There's no safety net. There's nothing that you can rely upon. There's nothing that you can trust. And so Job has left the land of hope. And he's entered into a country that when you get to the border, it's marked despair. He feels condemned and helpless. And so for Job, guilt and innocence no longer mattered. He can't even lift his head because of the disgrace. And he's drowning, drowning, drowning in a sea of misery. Claire Booth Luce writes, quote, There are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. From Job's perspective, it looks like a hopeless situation. What Claire Booth Luce is trying to point out is, are, do people have the right to have hope? when it doesn't even look like there is such a thing as hope. Isaac Watts writes, Hope thinks nothing is difficult. Despair tells us that the difficulty is insurmountable. And so those are the border between hope and despair. uh, despair. George Whitfield, the famous uh, preacher and evangelist who in the uh, Great Awakening during the... The the 1740s prior to the um, American Revolution wrote, Let us never despair while we have Christ as our leader. But remember, Job doesn't have a Bible. Job doesn't have a revelation. 
The only revelation that he has is the world that he sees around him and the conscience that is within him and the communication that God has made at least up until that point. If Job happened to keep his head above water, Job felt like God was going to use his enormous power and his inexhaustible resources to just continue to afflict him. That's what it says in verse 16. If my head is exalted, in other words, if I ever get a chance to just come up for air, just even for a little bit, you hunt me like a fierce lion. And again, you show your awesome against me. In other words, right when I seem to come to a place where it looks like there might be some sunshine, there might be a ray of hope, it feels like I get slapped down again. In verse 17, he says, you renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. In verse 17, when you look at the text and it says, you renew your witnesses against me. Who do you suppose these witnesses are? I'm going to suggest to you that it might be Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, who hasn't been a problem, Zophar. But he's going to be in the next chapter. Job wonders... Hmm, have you sent these guys to me, Lord? Have you sent these people to me with a message for me? Again, McKenna, with great insight, expresses his amazement at Job's mature faith and his knowledge of God. And what does Job base his faith on? Remember, remember, remember. Job's understanding of God has come from the world around him. Job's understanding of God comes from his conscience within him. Job's understanding of God is based on the real conversations that God has made up until that point. And remember, for those of you who've been following along in the book of Job, remember that Job would get up early and he would seek the Lord and he would make sacrifices for his children. So he understood that there is a sense in which salvation must come through some kind of sacrifice. I'm reminded of a statement made by Terence. Terence was a, a Roman playwright who, who lived during the time of the Roman Republic. This is like 150 years before Julius Caesar. But he wrote, never despair. But if you do, work on it. Work on in despair. In other words, it was Terence's way of saying... Are you in a position where there's pain and there's problem, there's depression and disappointment and despair? Hey, guess what? Does it help to give in to the despair? Does it help to just give up and give in to the depression and the disappointment? Even the unbeliever knows it's not helpful. And so he says, go forward. Go on. And in verse 18... Job's bitter conclusion. Look what it says. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. You understand what Job is saying. Job is saying, 
Why didn't I just simply die in my mother's belly? Why couldn't I have gone from the womb to the tomb and nothing in between? You know, people wonder about children. He says, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? You know what he's asking. Why am I alive? Why did you spare my life? Why did you allow me to live? Why didn't I just die? Wouldn't I have been better off? I came across some interesting statistics this week from pro-life across America. They wrote, did you know, 18 days, a baby's heart begins to beat. Eight weeks, all of the internal organs are functioning in the, in the baby. Nine weeks, you have individual fingerprints. Ten weeks, a baby can feel pain. He has a central nervous system. Twelve weeks, a baby is capable of smiling. If you continue, you discover something. And that is that the baby has everything that you have. On Sunday, I reminded everyone that the only difference between you and a baby in the mother's womb is just time and nutrition. The Guttmacher Institute this year reported that 1.2 million babies die each year through abortion. And Job is asking the question, does it even matter? Does it even matter? Is each life a precious life and an important life? In verse 19 he says, I would have been as though I had not been. In other words, when you read that text in verse 19, I would have been as though I had not been. It's his way of saying, I wish I had never been born. I wish that I could imagine a world in which Job never existed. I never get married. I never have these ten children. I never have servants. My life is as if it had had never was. Many of you, of course, during the Christmas time and this particular season, watch It's a Wonderful Life with Jeremy Storr. You know the, the movie. It's a Wonderful Life, the story of a man who, in despair, he wishes he were dead. And he is given a peek of, at a world in which he was never born. And of course, if he was never born, then he isn't able to save his brother through the ice crack, who his brother is going to become a hero in World War II and save an entire ship. He isn't going to be able to stop a pharmacist from making a fatal mistake as he begins to feel a prescription. And you begin in the story to see the unintended consequences that begin to unfold as you look at your life and as you look at the life of your children and you look at the, at the people that you've affected and the lives that you've touched and the difference that you've made. But Job is entertaining the idea. That maybe the world would have been a better place if he had never been born. Remember what Job doesn't see. Job is in a trash heap. Job is praying. 
He has three friends who are listening to the speech. He thinks no one else is listening. No one else hears. But remember what I've already said. There's an invisible, innumerable multitude that have gathered to listen to what Job has to say. He says, I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. He says in verse 20, are not my days few? Cease. Leave me alone that I may take a little comfort. Job wonders if there will be just a a brief moment, a respite, if there's just going to be some fleeting moment of joy. Is it possible that all of the pain and all of the horror and all of the despair and all of the the issues, is there going to be just one fleeting moment of joy that he can have before he dies? Let me ask you a question in verse 20. Are my days few? Cease, leave me alone. Is Job speaking to God, do you think? Or do you think he's speaking to his friends? When Job makes that statement, do you suppose he's still praying? Or do you suppose he hopes his friends will hear? David Watson writes, quote, Sometimes I battle with depression. I never know all the reasons for this dark pit, as it seems to me. Some of it may be hurt pride. Sometimes it's obviously exhaustion, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. At times when I'm tired and strained, I get angry with myself for getting angry. And as I suppress both forms of anger, depression is the result. I am then even more difficult to live with than usual. I don't want people to get near me, or at least too near to me. But I hope very much that they won't go too far away either. Unquote. Isn't that interesting? I get upset. I get discouraged. I get depressed. And I don't want anybody around. I want them to go away. But I don't want them to go very far. I think that's interesting. Particularly if you've ever felt that way. Hurt. Disappointed. Angry. Upset. Not wanting to be with anyone but wanting to make sure that everyone is close by. Life is hard. And life is brief. One Bible writer said, so many problems exist in our world that lead us astray, that discourage us, that bring us down. Death, disease, divorce, Adultery, unemployment, corruption, violence, to name a few. I'm sure your list could be even greater. 
He says, yet the Psalms also offer great hope. This is one of the major reasons God's word has been given to us to bring us hope and bring us assurance. We might feel as if we're drowning and we can't go on, but God's word serves as an anchor. God's word can secure us even in the most critical times, the most desperate times, the darkest times. The times where the night seems to continue and to go on forever. Our feelings may be that of total desperation. But God's truth will rise above our feelings. This is an important note. You see, one of the most painful, painful parts of the passage is the part where God is silent. You see, if you have a word, it can be a word of hope. But one of the things that makes this passage so difficult and so hard is because for Job, this is one of those nights where he doesn't seem to hear anything from God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, How much longer, Lord, will you forget about me? Will it be forever? How long will you hide? How long must I be confused and miserable all day? How long will my enemies keep beating down? Unquote. Maybe in that dark night, you've said exactly the same thing. Lord, how long is this going to go on? How much darkness, how much pain, how much pressure, how much disappointment can I take? Job is asking the question, if you created me, then why did you create me just to destroy me? Lord, why didn't you just let me die? Job, in effect, is saying, I was once the object of your care, and now I've become the object of your destruction. No offense. But could you please explain that to me? In verse 21, it says, Before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, Remember, Job writes these words and says these words a thousand years before there's a David. A thousand years before David writes, The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. You know how the psalm goes, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is this sense that that the external is going to perish. And he says in verse 22, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death, without any order, where even light is like darkness. That's what Job thinks about death. I'm 
going to the dark place. Where even the light is dark. Think about what's going on. Job prays, leave me alone. The darkness is coming. Wearsby makes an interesting observation at this point. He writes, Job could not understand what God was doing. And I was shocked when I read this. He wrote, and it was important that he not understand. What? Job couldn't understand what God was doing, and it was important that he did not understand. Listen to what Wearsby writes. Had Job known that God was using him as a weapon to defeat Satan, he could have simply sat back and waited trustfully for the battle to end. But as Job surveyed himself and his situation, he asks the same questions that the disciples asked when Mary anointed the Lord Jesus in Mark 14.4. Why this waste? Before we criticize Job too severely, let's recall how many times we've asked the question ourselves. When a baby has died, or a promising young person has been killed in an accident, unquote. He's basically saying, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand, explain to me what's going on. It would have been interesting if Job would have had access to the New Testament. You know, I'm getting old. And the older I get, the more experiences I have of what you and I would call the final moment. Some of you have had that experience. You've had it maybe with your great-grandma or great-grandpa, your grandmother, grandfather, your father, your mother, a brother, a sister, a loved one. You have that final moment, the final moment where you're with your loved one. You are on that bed of affliction. The, The night is coming or the night is in full force and the doctor or the nurse has already said that they're not going to make it through the night and the older you get the more of these vigils you experience and sometimes what seems like a cruel and crushing experience with someone that you're quite certain isn't ready to die And you need God's grace. And you need God's promise. And you need God's hope. And in Job's world, he thinks that the only land that is in his future is a land of darkness. Again, McKenna points out that eternal darkness doesn't await the the believer, but the unbeliever. He quotes Jude 13, remember where it says, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He writes, quote, if only Job knew how God really felt about him. If he only knew how God anticipated his companionship in heaven. Even without this knowledge, Job refuses to give up his belief in companionship. He refuses to give up his belief about God. 
and the wisdom of God and the creation of God and a God who cares for him and a God who speaks to him and a God who sustains him. He writes, his past relationship with his God must hold him. I'm going to repeat it. He writes, his past relationship with his God must hold him. Because the present relationship of suffering seems to be a contradiction, unquote. Job's coming to a place where he thinks he's at the end of his life. And he still wonders, God, God, can you explain to me what's happening? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about the deathbed experience. Listen, quote, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end so that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, The one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lloyd-Jones writes, the Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace, grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am, he writes. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me, unquote. There may come a point where you're sitting on that bed and you're holding that person's hand your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, God forbid, your son, your daughter. And the pain and the darkness and the disease has taken its toll. And they cry out like Job. And you cry out like McKenna. If only they knew if they only knew how God really felt about them. What if I told you that it's your privilege to tell them exactly that, to hold their hand and repeat the words, we have it on good authority. We have it on an excellent source that God thinks about you and what he thinks about you. Chuck Swindoll points out, quote, when misery breaks our spirit, philosophical words don't help us cope, unquote. He also points out that close friendship with someone doesn't give that person a license to say whatever we want to say to that person. He says, instead, we should be motivated to exercise love and compassion. And he then points out, That when a mediator can't be found, futile searches won't give us hope. Swindoll sees at least one important, truthful lesson in Job's sufferings. And that is that only God can be trusted. That when the safety net is gone, when the wealth is gone, 
when the family is gone, when all of these other things have disappeared, that there's a true God and you can trust him. He says, quote, even when God's dealing seemed incomprehensible and mysterious, Job recognized his sovereignty. Though Job, though Satan buffeted Job, though his wife urged him to curse God and die, and his friends condemned him, the patriarch of patience stood the test. Instead of searching for hope in all of the wrong places, Job still, in spite of all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the disappointment and all of the depression, he'll still put his trust in, in the Lord. His faith in an immovable rock, an invincible source, Can you imagine this speech, three people, but there's a multitude in heaven listening. There's the pre-incarnate Jesus watching, listening, knowing how it's all going to end. Same is true of your life. Some of you are well past the beginning. Some of you have quite conceivably made it way past the middle. Some of you might be inching towards the end. But make no mistake about it. You have what Job didn't have. A clear vision of a real Jesus who loves you and will sustain you. In a moment, we're going to have um, communion. What I want you to do is just hold the elements of the bread and the juice until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, whatever else Job tells us, Lord, that, Lord, even when we strain to hear your voice, even, Lord, when we are discouraged by what we perceive as to be an emptiness, Lord, we know that you haven't forgotten us. Lord, I know that there are so many people who feel so alone. They feel like they're in a difficult situation. Sickness has taken its toll. Unemployment has taken its toll. Loneliness has taken its toll. Lord, for the person who feels wounded and forgotten, Lord, I pray that your love and your grace and your mercy would speak to them. Lord, I pray that they would begin to realize that their feelings of doubt or discouragement can't be the thing that informs their spiritual reality. That a real Jesus loves us, died for us. Lord, we pray, not just simply that our sins would be forgiven, 
Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us so that we would forsake those forgiven sins. In Jesus' name, amen.